There was a man whom the Lord loved. His name is Lazarus. And yet, though loved by God, he was sick. In fact, so sick, his sisters, Mary and Martha, anticipated he may not survive the illness. He may pass away. Somehow, Mary and Martha, caring family members, got word to this wonderful and unique rabbi, Jesus, who was elsewhere, uh, and they informed him of the illness of their beloved brother. And yet, in spite of it, the Lord uh, delayed. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and yet mysteriously delayed in coming. They had every expectation that if the Lord came before their brother passed away, he would keep it from happening. They had that confidence in the miracle worker, this Jesus, and yet, inexplicably, he delayed. It's hard for us to figure this out. He loved, yet he delayed. They were located in Bethany, which we learned something about last week. It was east of Jerusalem, just about two miles from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. The Lord was elsewhere. They got word to him, but he did not yet get to them. And so this being the case, look what happened now. We'll continue in John chapter 11. It's verse 7 we'll begin with tonight. John 11, verse 7. The story goes on this way. Then, after this, he, that's the Lord Jesus, said to the disciples, his intimate group of followers, he said to them, let us go to Judea again. He had been there. Judea is a province in which Jerusalem is located. The Lord at the time was not in Judea. He left. He was in a place called Perea, another province, in this case on the other side of the Jordan River. So if you cross the Jordan River to the, to the east of it is this other province called Perea. Uh, Lazarus and sisters are in Judea. The Lord is in a different place. So the disciples said to him in verse 8, Rabbi, that means teacher, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? If you don't mind sharing, uh, uh, letting me share with you a bit of a sidelight in defense of my people, uh, see where it says, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Be careful of indicting the entirety of Jewish people. I mean, the folks who made that statement were Jews themselves. All the disciples here were Jews themselves. In fact, a better translation of the word Jews in this context is the Judeans. That's what it says in the Greek. The Jewish religious leaders in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, in the province of Judea, these Judeans were in fact seeking to stone the Lord Jesus. It wasn't that the Jews wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, all of his first century early followers were Jews. The exception would be a Gentile follower of the Lord Jesus. The problem is with the false shepherds of Israel, frankly, of any group. These were false, uh, false charlatans, these religious leaders. They were more concerned about protecting and sustaining their own position than in truth. So the disciples remind the Lord, as if he forgot, we cannot go back to Judea. Surely you're not serious. That's where they sought to take your life. Are you going there again? And so based on this concern, the Lord responds in verse 9, in a way, it's really hard to figure this out. I've done the best I can in trying to make sense of what the Lord said. It's kind of a figurative way of answering them. Here's what it says, verse 9. 
Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. In that day, uh, both Jewish and Roman time reckoning divided the day, 24 hours, into 12 hours and 12 hours. First 12 hours, that's the day. Second 12 hours, that's the night. The Lord's point, uh, the day is made up of 12 hours. You cannot increase it. You cannot abbreviate it. Everyone gets 12 hours. The day for you, for me, consists of 12 hours, not more, not less. And so the Lord is saying to his concerned disciples that the hours of the day are set. They are predetermined, and they cannot be modified by any circumstances. And so the Lord, I think, is trying to say, he, as the God-man, we, as men and women, live in the confines of a set and preordained amount of time. Therefore, our concern ought not to be with the fact that our day may come to a premature end. Our concern ought to be instead with the proper and effective use of whatever time we have. The hours of the day, I think the Lord is saying, are not to be worried about. Boy, we can get that way uh, today. Man, you watch too much news. You can't drink this. You can't breathe that. You can't eat. I mean, good night. You're going to worry yourself. I mean, the Lord is essentially saying, no, no, no. The 12 hours you and I have are not meant to be worried about. They're meant to be used. And so the Lord is saying his 12th hour had not yet come. And until it does, he's going to be about the Father's business, and so too should we. Folks, listen to this somewhat crazy statement. I think if you're a Christian, you and I, I think we are immortal until the Lord says, come home. And because that time is determined by the Lord, nobody can modify it. They can't decrease it nor increase it. When the Lord says, your time's up, come home, that's the way it is. Until that point, we are absolutely immortal. And so the Lord is saying his work, his day, are not yet over. And that no crazed mob of pseudo-religious leaders are going to be able to cut short his life and work because his days were allotted not by the Jewish religious leaders, his days were allotted by his father. And therefore, he's not going to die before his time. That's what he says. But by way of contrast, look at verse 10. But if anyone walks in the night, not in the day, if anyone walks in the night, here's what he does. He stumbles. Why? Because the light is not in him. It's a metaphor. If you're not walking in the day, if you're not walking in submission to the will of God, if you're walking in the night, the darkness, if you're rebelling against God, you're on your own. There is no guarantee that God's involved in your life. He's not ordering your days. You have decided to do it for yourself. We'll have at it, is essentially what this says. You are on your own. Then the Lord says in verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend, I just love this, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Now, we know, don't we, that the Lord there is essentially saying Lazarus died. We know this, don't we? But the Lord is putting it in a rather poetic way. Why? 
Why is he using the terminology of sleep rather than death? Because a follower of the Lord Jesus, a believer, as apparently Lazarus was, will never experience the permanence of death. Death has a permanent ring to it. No, the believer who passes sleeps. Sleep is temporary. People wake up from it, as hopefully some of you will by the time we finish here tonight. That's why it's not just poetry, it's accurate theology. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is removed. And so for the believer who knows Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, dying doesn't have the last word. Resurrection does. And so that's the Lord's point here. So he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Our friend. While Lazarus was alive, Lazarus had a relationship with the Lord. He was on friendly terms. He had hitherto been hostile to the Lord. He was an adversary, but by faith, his relationship was transformed. And now he came to be, while alive, on friendly terms with the Lord. And even though Lazarus now has died, he still is on friendly terms with the Lord. Folks, death does not interfere with the friendship Lazarus had established here with the Lord. So I want to ask you a question. Answer it to yourself as you sit there. What do you expect to happen when you die? What is your expectation of that reality? Will you, do you think, find yourself to be on friendly terms with the Lord, as did Lazarus, or um, not? If you are on friendly terms with the Lord now, by faith in Jesus as Savior, do you believe you will continue, even upon death, do you believe you will continue to be on friendly terms with him? Do you believe your friendship with the Lord will outlast the inevitability of your death? I hope you do, because it's true. Listen, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, listen to this, of those who are, here we go again, asleep. Even Paul uses the same metaphor. Not dead, even those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's a reference to Adam, For by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. How do I know that? Because the next sentence tells us, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Folks, a right relationship established with Jesus Christ now, by faith, will be sustained there on the other side of death. You've heard of a man named D.L. or Dwight L. Moody, a great, famous American evangelist. He passed away in 1899. Before he did, he made this statement. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. He knew what his destiny was. He was right. Folks, upon death, those who have come to be on friendly terms with the Lord Jesus here will be immediately greeted by the same Lord Jesus there. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus here, then your last day here, none of us know when it's coming, your last day here will be your first day 
with him on friendly terms throughout eternity. The relationship, you see, that you have established with the Lord here persists forever. It is not swallowed up in death. No, on the contrary, death has been swallowed up by the one who rose up from death. There was a man named Charles Kingsley. He was a British pastor. He died in 1875, and he once said, It is not darkness you are going to, for God is light. It is not lonely, for Christ is with you. It is not an unknown country, for Christ is there. Folks, if you're a Christian, the Christ you have come to know here will meet up with you there. Please don't fear death. Don't do it. But I want to ask you, this is important, you must ask yourself, is this that I just spoke about, is this your hopeful expectation? What, in fact, is your expectation of your death? Will your death separate you from the giver of life, or will your death unite you with him forever? John, the writer of the book we've been studying for quite some time, once said in another book of the Bible that he also wrote, he said this, it's in 1 John chapter 5, you know this, 11 and 12. He said, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. How do I find it? Where is it contained? And this life is in his Son. Therefore, he who has the Son, there it is, don't make it complicated, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son, does not have life. That's what it says. Could I ask you a rhetorical question, but you must answer it, hopefully before you leave tonight. Why not settle the matter right now? If you're doubtful and confused about what happens when you die, why not, why not settle the matter? Why, why not remove all doubt? Why not take Jesus, the Son of God, as your Savior tonight? Why not do it? Even as I speak, even as you sit there, why don't you have a private conversation with, I won't be offended. You just go ahead. That's more important than me talking to you. You should talk to God. You should say, oh, God, giver of life. I admit one thing, and that is death is inevitable. Uh, it's going to happen to me. I don't feel ready for it. I want to be ready. Please come into my life. Forgive my sins. That's caused a spiritual death in me. That will be my eternal reality. I don't want it to be. Come into my life, resurrection and life, you who rose up from death. Change me from the inside. Forgive my sins. Lord, that's the big problem. Forgive my sins. and Give me the hope of eternity with you. Let me sing, as some of these Christians do, oh, what a friend I have in Jesus. Don't pass in an adversarial relationship with the Lord Jesus. That will be your destiny forever if you do. Why not establish friendly terms with him by faith right now. You know, in England in the 1500s, they were burying a lot of people, plagues and so on. They began to run out of space to bury people. This is what they had to do, therefore. They had to go to the graveyard, and unearth the coffins. They had to remove the bones which were left in the coffins. They respectfully took them to something called a bone closet. They stored them there that left the coffin empty and available for the next person who died. They would reuse the coffin and the burial plot. But why, while they were removing uh, the bodies from the coffins, 
uh, they found that on average, one out of every 25 coffin they unearthed had scratches on the inside. And they came to this horrifying conclusion that they were burying all too many people alive. So they came up with this plan. They tied a string onto the wrist of the deceased person, the body. And they led the, the uh, string up through the coffin and up through the ground. And on the other end of it, one end tied to the wrist of the deceased person. And on the other end, they tied a bell. This is a true story. And they found somebody to stay awake all night in the graveyard. That's where we got the expression, the graveyard shift. I mean it. And that person's job was to listen to the sound of the bell. If that one heard the bell, that person would quickly rush to the coffin, and the person in the coffin would be saved by the bell. That's where we got the expression. Saved by the bell. Could I tell you something? No bell's going to save you, but Jesus will. Don't be waiting, waiting for some mysterious bell or anything else. Nothing else will save you. John told us salvation, eternal life is contained in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to establish a right relationship with him. I wish you would do so tonight. Please give it serious thought as we continue. Now listen, if you accept the Lord Jesus tonight, then when you pass, what is said in our text of Lazarus will be said of you. Remember, the Lord said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. If you are a Christian, you can insert your name into that. You could say, our friend, put your name in there. Our friend and your name has fallen asleep. That's a reality. And after making this statement, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, the Lord said now in verse 11, he said, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Do you know what that literally says in the Greek? I go that I may unsleep him. That's what it says. Folks, let me ask you a question. When you die, will Jesus unsleep you? Or will you remain dead, spiritually separated from the giver of life forever? What will it be for you? Will Jesus do for you what he's about to do for Lazarus? Will he unsleep you? He said he would do this for all those who simply trust him to do it. I, I pray you would trust him. Be sure you have put your trust in Jesus as your Savior tonight. Now, verse 12, the disciples, they're hearing all this, you understand. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, that is amusing because they don't get it, do they? They thought the Lord was speaking of literal sleep. Now, we know they didn't get it, because we have more of the Bible than they did. I'm so glad the Bible honestly records the misunderstandings of those disciples. Listen, they were in the very presence of the perfect teacher, yet had a perfect and imperfect understanding of spiritual truth. That really encourages me, because we do too. We don't, it's just a, a lot of things, spiritual things, I just don't fully understand. I don't get it. One time, I spoke here one night about free will and predestination with regard to salvation. Which is it? 
And we looked at some passages of scriptures which speak about free will and just as many that speak about predestination. And I remember telling you, this is dividing the body of Christ so foolishly. People are taking sides. And I told you, let me just tell you, I, don't, I won't take sides because I think they both are operative somehow. But here's the deal. I don't know how God can harmonize what seems to be unharmonizable. That's why we worship him. We don't fully comprehend him. We bow at his feet because an infinite God can somehow merge what looks like two inconsistent or two competing concepts. And I remember saying, I don't know how it works. Well, a guy who was watching this streaming, maybe he's watching tonight, and so sorry I'm using you if you are as an example, uh, but you deserve this. He wrote a scathing email uh, to, to, to his credit, to your credit. He copied me, but sent it to the pastor. How could you have on your staff someone who claims to be able to teach the Bible yet stands up in front of people and admits to them he doesn't get it? He doesn't know how this works. And I thought to myself, for crying out loud, how do you get, how do you fully comprehend an infinite deity? Are you kidding me? I, listen to me. I don't understand how electricity works. I don't understand how my carburetor works. How dare I think I'm going to fully be able to come to grips with all of the lofty truths hinted at and contained in Scripture. I am perfectly comfortable saying there's many things I can't fully understand. I didn't say I don't accept it. I just don't fully understand. And I'm so encouraged, therefore, by honest statements like this, the disciples really didn't get it. I get even what they didn't get. And so what I did, just for kicks uh, for tonight, I did a quick survey in the Gospels of the times, the other times the disciples really didn't get it. And there's no real reason for me to share this with you. I'm just, I'm getting a kick out of it. Because, man... They're not so hot, uh, and that gives us permission not to be so hot either. Hey, look at, do you remember in John chapter 4, the disciples encouraged the Lord Jesus to eat? And he responded to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. They thought he was talking about literal, physical food, and he had to explain to them, no, 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 my food, the food he was talking about, is to do the will of him who sent me. Remember that one? They didn't get it. How about in Mark 7? The Lord taught uh, his disciples that it's stuff that comes out of a person that is the source of defilement, not certain specified foods going in. Food is not going to spiritually defile you. You're already defiled by nature. Remember he shared that? And they didn't have a clue what he was talking about, and so he had to explain to them. Remember in Mark chapter 8, the Lord said to them, he was warning them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. They were in a boat together at the time. They said, oh my goodness, I know why he said that. It's because we didn't, we didn't bring enough bread. And what he's telling us is, you got to get some, but don't buy it from those Pharisees. That's the conclusion they came to. I just love this. They had so much to learn. And then it occurred to me, yeah, but that's what a disciple is. So I looked up the word disciple. In its Latin root, it means learner. 
A disciple. Somebody asks you, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You say, well, I don't think so because I don't understand all this kind of stuff. I don't have it all together, but I'm trying. You are a disciple then. A disciple is someone who follows the master, who every day is willing to teach us more and more and more. A disciple is never someone who arrives. A disciple is someone who's in the process of following the leader. Well, anyway, so... uh, That's what happened. And I realized, man, there's a ton of stuff. The Lord's intimate, most devoted followers who become the head of the church. I saw there's a million things they don't get. So I asked myself the question, well, they must have got something. How could they be the disciples if they didn't know of and accept something? So I asked myself the question, what are the rudimentary truths of the faith you must accept in order to call yourself a Christian? What are the basics of salvation? And I studied a little bit, and then I realized, I'm not going to let Paul answer this question, because he does a better job than me. And he did so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He said that Christ died for a sin according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In those two verses, I, I think, are summarized and encapsulated what every single person must accept, know of and accept in order to be saved. Now all the rest of the stuff, mode of baptism, women's roles, predestination, free will, principles of divorce and remarriage, I mean all this kind of stuff that we're still in the process of figuring out, I don't think agreement on those things is at all necessary in order to be saved. I think Paul told us what's necessary in order to be saved. Here's what you have to believe. The first thing, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul hints at it, I have to believe there's sin in my life. I mean, that's what it says. Christ died for our sins. Now, if I deny that that I'm a sinner, then I cannot be saved. Did you know that? If I deny that I have sin in my life, I cannot be saved. See, because if I have nothing I need to be saved from, I really have no use for God's offer of salvation. It's not possible, therefore, to be saved until you acknowledge you're a sinner. Secondly, I have to believe that God became man. For Christ died for sins. I have to believe that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and died as a substitute for my sins. I just have to believe that. So I have to acknowledge I'm a sinner. Now there's a penalty to pay, and I am so grateful that God provided a way whereby his son would pay the penalty. I have to believe that. I'm a sinner. There is a Savior. And third, I have to believe Jesus rose up from death. I'll tell you why I have to believe that. His death saved me and you from the penalty of sin. But his life saves us from the power of sin. If all he did was to die, end of story, I will continue in this unbroken pattern of sin. I need some help. I need the Savior who won victory over the last enemy, death, rose up from death. I need him to come into my life and impart new life for me, the kind of life which says, oh God, I'm finding a new ability to say no to sin. I never had it before. A dead Jesus can't do it. A risen Savior can do it, you see? So those are the three, it seems to me, basic things I must believe. All the rest, let's keep studying. Let's be in process. Let's keep learning. And let's not fight each other over things we can't really know with certainty. 
Let's be united by these three fundamentals, which you find in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. These are the basics of salvation. Now, the disciples of the Lord, as I think I've shown, didn't know everything. But they knew everything they needed to know in order to be saved. And thus they were. So, they didn't know what the Lord meant in this case at all about the fact that Lazarus was sleeping and therefore John corrects their misunderstanding in verse 13 and on. He says, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. No more figurative language. He just told them plain and simple because they were not catching on. He makes it clear. No, 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 I'm not talking about sleep. No, 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 no. Lazarus is dead. And then he says, I am glad for your sakes I was not there in Bethany when Lazarus died. The Lord is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there. Now, wait just a second. Mary and Martha were really upset. The Lord who loved them delayed. He didn't come for two days. They knew if he was there, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. Because when the Lord gets there, we'll see it, Lord willing, next week, both sisters, independent of one another, say to the Lord, if you were here, this would not have happened. He did not come. So we asked the question, how could you have delayed if you, in fact, love? Now we're getting an answer. The Lord said, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes. Why? So that you may believe. Then he says, let us go to him. So that you may believe. Wait a second. I thought the disciples did believe. They did. They believed and knew of everything they needed to know in order to be saved. But they didn't know much about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for more. And frankly, I'm not sure we do either. You could believe everything you need to. These three basic things I told you about. I've sinned. We have a Savior. He died for my sin, but then rose up from death. When you know that, then you have expressed belief in Jesus as Savior. But he wants us to develop trust and belief in him, not just as Savior, but as sustainer, as supplier, as good shepherd. And that requires life experience. And the Lord says, no, 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 I'm not going there right away because it's in your best interests if I don't. I want Lazarus to be thoroughly dead. Four days during which time his body deteriorated so that when I go, you disciples who already have accepted me as Savior can see that I'm even much more than that so that you can trust me through all the difficult life events that befalls you. Folks, this applies to us as well. We believe in him as Christians, as Savior, but we need his help in us believing him for more, to be our guide, to be our companion, to be our shield, to be our rock, to be our supplier, to be our sustainer. We really, really need to grow. To believe in Jesus as he who died for my sins, that uh, makes him my savior. But I have to believe him for the rest so that I can be made a more mature believer. And you don't get to be a more mature believer just by Bible study. I wish that was the case. You get to be a more mature believer by seeing how God works, even at the extremity of your needs. There sits Randy Jensen right there. God bless you, brother. Really great to see you. I'm telling Jonathan, I'm surprised you're here.
Because Randy Jensen, with an I, Randy's wife, is seriously ill. Many complications and sorely in need of a liver transplant right now as we speak. And I don't know of a more uh, devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ than Randy, both with an I and a Y, than these two. They are loved by the Lord Jesus just like Lazarus was, but they're experiencing the, the delay of a Savior who loves them. Why? Because I think he can entrust this experience to both of them. That's why. Because the roots of their faith are so deep, he can drive it deeper. And so he has entrusted them this extremity of need. I don't know what it's like to sit at a loved one's bedside and see her go through all this. I don't know what it's like. I'm not sure I want to. But it doesn't matter because God doesn't wait for permission, does he, Randy? Why is he doing that? Because though a student of the Bible knows the word of God, God wants him to know and believe him firsthand even more. They already do as Savior. But they have to know him as great physician, as supplier, as guide, as companion, as good shepherd, as he who will never leave them or forsake them, as he who has good intentions, good redemptive purposes, as he allows all this that you may believe even more. That's how it is, Randy. You didn't ask for it. Nobody does. I don't like it. You don't like it. God loves us and wants us, having been saved, now to be sanctified, set apart, wholly available unto him. One time I told you a story about a lady named Henrietta Mears who passed away. Before she passed away, they asked her, Miss Mears, what would you have done differently? She said, I would have trusted him more. We all will do that. I don't want there to be a big gap in my life circumstances and ability to trust Jesus through them. Neither does he, so he's narrowing the gap. His delays do not mean denials of what our petitions. It just means he's up to something better. It's for his glory, Randy, and for our good. That's just, that's just the way it is. So he's going to use his delay in coming to Bethany to help Mary and Martha and all the disciples mature in their faith. And because he loved us as he loved them, frankly, he's going to do the same for us. And here's the deal. He's willing and able to use even hurtful things to mature us in the faith and to cause us to trust him more. He is.